Welcome to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we share the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. As we wrap up Pastor Harris's fourth and final message on discouragement, let's take a step back to episode one, where Pastor Harris defined discouragement and explained this with some of his own personal examples. In the second episode, Pastor Harris discussed the many causes of discouragement and ways that Christians can combat these feelings. In the third episode, Pastor Harris discussed three don'ts, or three things we should avoid to rise above discouragement. And in this final episode, Pastor Harris will use the story of Joshua to paint a picture of the curse that discouragement can be, and the parallels that can be found between this curse and the curse of sin. This series has been very applicable for me in my day-to-day, and I hope it's been the same for all of you listening as well. As you all know, I've been sharing listener reviews in each of these messages on discouragement. And if you don't know how to leave a review, it's super easy. If you're on your iPhone and in your podcast app, tap your way to the Relational Grace podcast and scroll down to the section titled Ratings and Reviews. Under some of the reviews, you'll see a link there titled Write a Review. Click that and it's really simple from there. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that for us. It helps so much. So to finish off our listener reviews, I wanted to feature one from Gary and Gwen Allen. They write, Just listen to the family podcast. It was wonderful to hear the story behind the story. Pastor Nick was the best teacher and preacher we have ever heard. He made the Bible come to life. We can't wait to listen to the lame prince. Now, of course, I'm fairly biased here, but I too believe that my dad was the best teacher and preacher that I've ever heard. And that's why we continue to share these teachings, and we hope to share many more to come. One thing to note here is that Gary and Gwen started listening to our podcast by listening to episode one, which we refer to as the family discussion. This is a great way to kick off listening to the Relational Grace podcast, as my mom, my big brother Deke, my sister Amy, and I tell our family story and in turn tell more about our dad and his unique journey with the Lord, his ministry, and our family. In fact, just this week I ran into an old friend of mine named Bruce. I was sharing a bit about the podcast with Bruce and recommended he started listening to this podcast by starting on episode one. It's a really neat way to get the full picture of this man that continues to teach us from this podcast each week or however often you listen. Gary and Gwen also mentioned the next episode titled The Lame Prince. This would be our episode two. This is one of Dad's foundational lessons on relational grace. Now, a little bird told me that if you listen to the end of episode two, you'll hear how you can get a free copy of Dad's book, The Lame Prince, sent via postal mail. We love sending this book to listeners, and if you don't have one, you sure need one. So let's get into the final episode of Pastor Harris's four-part series on discouragement, with this message titled, Discouragement's Curse. And he, Joshua, was the commanding general of the armies of Israel. And if there ever was a man of God, beloved, I want to say this without even flinching. If there was ever a man of God, it was Joshua. He was a man who had both the call and the anointing of God upon his life. But this was also a man who found himself in the abyss of discouragement one day, And I mean discouragement with a capital D. You can't find a more discouraged man anywhere in the Bible. I want you to listen to his words and see if you can identify with him this morning. He says, alas. Now right away, you know, somebody says alas. That's not a word we use very much anymore, but Shakespeare used it. Alas and alack. Oh, woe is me. I mean, this is witness language. When you say alas, you're you're saying, I'm a victim. Alas, O Lord God, 
Why have you brought these people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content on the other side of the Jordan. Get this picture? This is a man who is abjectly discouraged. Now, all I can say about what he says here is that this is a real lament. And what, and what makes this lament so startling is the fact that only a few days before, this same defeated man could be found almost walking on air. You see, after 40 long, frustrating years of wandering around in the Sinai Desert, he finally led this backward people out of the arid wastelands of Transjordan. And then he had surrounded and laid siege to the ancient city of Jericho, one of the greatest walled cities in the world of that day. But then, only seven short days after the siege began, the city of Jericho lay in ruins without a sword being drawn or a life being lost. This once proud city was no more than a useless heap of stones and rubble laid waste by the hand of God. What a tremendous victory. No wonder he was walking on air. I would have been walking on air. But now a little over a week has passed and we find Joshua not only down in the mouth, he's flat on his face in despair. He's maximally discouraged. He is discouraged with God. He's discouraged with his people. He's discouraged with himself. Now, you may be wondering, how can he go from this high to this low in less than a week? How did he manage to get in such a depressed and discouraged state so quickly? Well, let me tell you how it happened. Let me share the story of Joshua's journey into discouragement. See if you can relate to it. It may parallel certain journeys that all of us have taken at some time or another in our lives. Now, this is what occurred. Immediately following the fall of Jericho, Joshua began to make plans for an assault on the next Canaanite stronghold. Now, the target was the small walled enclave of Ai. In fact, I want you to understand, Ai was nothing more than a fortified village. It was nothing it was a nothing place when you compare it to Jericho. It had smaller walls. Only a handful of people lived there. Nevertheless, taking this fortification was essential to the plans of Joshua. Ai had to fall. This was the case because Ai guarded the major access route, leading from the forge of the Jordan near the oasis of Jericho to the strategically important central highlands of Canaan, and for Israel to survive in Canaan, they had to control the highlands. They had to be in charge of it. Now, this access route, I'm talking about, was not a road as we know a road. It was actually the dry bed of a wadi. But as those of you who have been to Israel know, that a lot of the roads in the Middle East are wadi beds. You travel through wadi beds to get where you're going. Why? Because they're washed down. And the grade is not like you're going over mountains it cuts between mountains and so the obvious way to go is to follow the wadis and that's what happens now there's always been a saying that whoever controls the roads of Palestine controls the land of Palestine now this was true 10,000 years ago and it's true today the Israelis know this one of the things that we noticed you remember the Lebanon war that that went on just not too, too long ago a year or so ago what has happened now is the Israelis recognized that they were having trouble getting their equipment from where it was in the Sinai 
to getting it up to the northern border. So what did they do? They've gone, and now they have a super highway, six lanes wide, that goes up the coastline, but now they have gone in about five miles, and they've put another super highway. Now if war breaks out, what have you got? You've got a way to get your machinery on one road while people can continue to traverse the other road. You have made roads possible. Well, for the Israelis, that's always been the case. They know you have to control the roads there. That was true. To, that's true today, and it was true in the time of Joshua. Now, since this particular wadi bed was a major highway of the time, Joshua knew he had to capture it and he had to control it. He had now secured the eastern end. When Jericho fell, he put a lock on there because you could not get into the wadi without going past Jericho. And so now Jericho has secured that end of it. Now what's he got to do? He's got to go secure the opposite end of it. And so as Joshua saw it, the conquest of Ai appeared to be a relatively simple military operation. So to prepare for the attack like any good general, Joshua sent several spies up to spy it out, find out where the armies of Ai were and how entrenched they were. And these spies came back with a positive assessment. They informed Joshua that two to 3,000 men could easily overrun this poorly defended Canaanite enclave. So Joshua decided to act quickly. He sent 3,000 of his best fighters up the wadi to launch a head-on assault and to subdue this enclave so that his main army would have uncontested access to the high ground that they would need. But, as this reduced detachment neared Ai, something totally unexpected happened. Evidently, the warriors of Ai had not read the Jericho newspapers. Or then again, maybe the Hebrews had read them too thoroughly and too often. Now, you know, this can be an awful mistake for anyone to make. Don't ever do that. Don't ever believe what you read about yourself in the paper or in a magazine. Many good politicians have gone down to, to defeat by reading their own press coverage. And even more great athletic teams have been defeated after reading how great they are in some magazine. Well, Joshua's soldiers acted as if they had been reading the papers as they attacked Ai. They attacked with bravado, but within moments of the initial attack, the Israelites were on the defensive, and then the rout began. And any Israelite... Now listen, it's in the Bible, you can read it. Any Israelite who died after that died from being wounded in his back. In fact, in a few minutes, 36 Israelites lay dead in the sandy bed of that wadi. And every one of the 2,964 remaining Hebrews ran all the way back to the main camp in the Jordan Valley. And all the while, the men of Ai followed them in hot pursuit. Now, when the word of this disaster reached Joshua, he was devastated. I think I can slip into his tent, and I think I can listen to what he has to say to God. What do you think? He must have asked himself, what on earth happened here? He must have said something like this. God, the great city of Jericho fell into our hands like an overripe plum without a single loss of Hebrew life. And now this tiny little outpost of several hundred men has completely decimated my army. He had to wonder, don't you think? Is it going to be this way from now on? Are we going to go from defeat to defeat? So Joshua cried out to God. 
Why did you bring us to this land? If you're just going to allow us to be slaughtered at the heads of the Amorites. My Lord, he cried, it'd have been better if we'd have just stayed in the desert. That sounds like conversations I've had with God. You see, and I believe that Joshua must have added something like this because when I usually say things like that to God, here's the kind of thing I add. God, just look at these soldiers of mine. I'm ashamed of them. They haven't died like real soldiers. They've died like cowards running from their enemy. This is what you call discouragement. I can't define it better than Joshua has lost heart. Well, at this point, God intervened. Stops old Joshua right there in his tracks. God began to tell Joshua in no uncertain terms. What had occurred to bring his nation to this place of defeat? God then explained to Joshua about this law of despair and discouragement in which they found themselves. And let me warn you, it's the very same thing that will bring you and I into a state of discouragement most of the time. Now remember the words that Joshua had spoken to God. Remember, he had said, Alas, O Lord God, have you brought these people over the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God that we'd been content on the other side of the Jordan? But then God responded to these words. Here's what God said to Joshua. He said, get up. Why are you laying on your face? Now, beloved, listen to pastor. Listen to pastor. If you're discouraged today, the first thing you've got to do is get up off your face. Don't just lay there and wallow in your pity. Get up. Get on your feet. Face your situation. When you feel discouraged, address your problems. Look them in the eyes. If you don't, if you choose to lay there and wallow in self-pity, then absolutely nothing good is ever going to happen to you. And I can assure you, you'll be just as discouraged ten years from now as you are today. You'll find yourself whipped. My father used to say to me, Son, it's bad to be whipped, but it's worse to stay whipped. That's some pretty good advice. My dad, as usual, was right. I'll never forget when I was pastoring in Lamont, Oklahoma, my oldest son was in kindergarten. And I was coaching, didn't make very much preaching, so I coached part-time, and so uh, I had the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade football team, and it was a pretty pathetic football team when we first started, and I'm going to guarantee you they got a lot better, and as a matter of fact, uh, we ended up winning a lot of games with those kids, but I had this one monster kid. I mean, every once in a while, you know, you've got one of these kids that grows faster than everybody else, and he stands head and shoulders above every other kid, he says. Now, you know you can't count on these kids later on when they get to high school because everybody else is going to catch up with them. But this kid was a sixth grader, and he was like already 5'6", probably went about 135 pounds. And he was a great big kid for the sixth grade. And so I put him back at tailback. He was pretty quick. He had a brother that played football at OSU, and he, you know, this kid had some genes. He, he, he was good back. And I had a blocking back that was a pretty good blocking back. And I mean, uh, he's a little kid, I, 
I worked with him on blocking. He got to where he could block just about anybody. So one day we were working, and, and I was missing a linebacker. One of the linebackers was gone, had the flu. Something was the matter with him. He wasn't there. And all the time I'd been coaching, Deke would come to me, and he'd say, Daddy, I want a football helmet. So I bought him a football helmet. Daddy, I want some shoulder pads. So I bought him some shoulder pads. Dad, I want some football pants. So I bought him some football pants. And I'd take my T-shirts and make jerseys out of them for him. He would walk around on the sideline. I even bought him some little shoes. And, you know, and he, he was out there on the sideline. So I didn't have a linebacker. I said, Dick, come here. Jump in here at this linebacker position. I said, I said, Scotty, Scotty Sherman, that's your man right there. Now, I want you to come through here. This is the blocking angle you take. Don't you pull the trigger on him. You hit him, you're dead. Just, I want to know that you know the blocking angle. So come out and screen him off. And I said, okay, we called our big back, the human horse. I said, listen, H.H., I said, here's how you run this play. Now, you want to cut off this block. Watch how the block develops and cut off the... Gotcha, coach. So, here we go. Play starts. H.H. gets the handoff. Sherman goes through to make the block. He screens off Deke. The H.H. starts to make his cut. All of a sudden, I see Deke's arms go back. I go... I, I, I hate to tell you what I really said. Uh, maybe I better not. Those arms went back, and the next thing I know, he hits that kid, that great big 135-pounder. He can't weigh more than 45, 50 pounds. He's just a little kid in kindergarten. And he hit him, and both of them go down in this, this cloud of dust. And before he even hits the ground, I'm screaming, Oh, my God, I ruined him. I ruined him. He's just getting started, and I ruined him. And he lays there on the ground. H.H. gets up and he looks at him. He's scared to death. He's looking at me, you know. He's going to kill me, you know. And Deke gets up on his hands and knees. Blood is running out of his nose. It's running out of his mouth. He already doesn't have his front two teeth. And he raises his head up and his little eyes are a little bit cloudy. And he looks up at me and looks me right in the face. He said, gosh, Daddy, that's fine. I knew right then and there I had me a football player. Here was a kid who was thoroughly beaten, and yet he got up gritting. What a lesson in life that was to me. Believe me, my friends, even God himself can't help us when we're walling around, laying there on the ground with our nose bloody, feeling sorry for ourselves. God cannot do anything for us. He cannot show us anything. He cannot help us when we're busy thinking that we're the only ones that's ever taken a whipping in life. Other people get whipped just like you do. You want to hear about real trouble, real disappointment, real discouragement? I put it in the bulletin for you this morning. Abraham Lincoln, as you said, one defeat after another. Most guys would have quit after about the third one and said, politics is not for me, not Abraham Lincoln. He just kept coming back for more. But let me tell you something about Abraham Lincoln you may not know. When Abraham Lincoln was in the White House, he'd been elected the 16th president of the United States of America. And his son, that he loved with all of his heart, I believe his name was Willie, died. What do you do when your kid dies? I'm going to tell you, you talk about something tough. I'm telling you, God didn't make us to live longer than our children. It's the worst kind of thing, I think, the worst kind of pain a parent can ever feel. 
And here was Lincoln involved in the middle of a great civil war. I mean, it, it was an agonizing thing. And his son dies. And Abraham Lincoln says this. He said, Until Willie died, I was never a Christian. I was a Methodist. I was never a Christian. He said, when Willie died, I knew I had one of two things to do. Ask Jesus to be my help or to try to struggle it out on my own. I had a civil war. I didn't feel that I could. Maybe he said that's the sorriest excuse in the world to establish a relationship with Christ, but I invited Jesus Christ to come and to live in me. A few weeks after that, he wrote the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln always said that that didn't come from him. And if you really read it, I can understand that. I think it was penned by the hand of God. See, the President of the United States, he was already a kind of a depressed kind of guy. Throughout his life, he's battled with depression, you know that. But after that, Mr. Lincoln was able to step up to the plate. You see, the great thing about Mr. Lincoln is that he wouldn't stay whipped. Just like Jesus of Nazareth would not stay whipped. In fact, Jesus wouldn't even stay dead. What do you do with your enemies when you kill them and they rise from the dead? Speaking of Jesus. Now here was a man who really knew how to handle discouragement. And there was a reason. He could handle discouragement because he knew the primary source of all discouragement. Listen to what he said in John 10.10. Brian's been sharing it with us every, every week. The thief, in this case Satan comes for no other reason than to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. And beloved, that is exactly what Satan does to us whenever and wherever he can. So I'm especially concerned about those three things. But of all those three things, right now for you, I'm concerned about his ability to steal from us. I can promise you one thing. He'll steal us blind if he can only entice us to live in sin. If he can get you to accept your sin and to live in it, he's got you. You see, any time Satan can get us to live in sin, he can put us in a place where he can steal everything we own, and he will. For one thing, he'll steal your marriage. Let me ask you, is your marriage going sour? Well, I can assure you that God's not stealing your marriage. Hello? God doesn't steal people's marriages. God is no thief. Satan is. For another thing, Satan will steal your joy. Let me ask you this. Is joy missing from your life? Well, I can assure you that God's not stealing your joy. God's no thief. Satan is a thief. And for yet another thing, Satan will also steal your potential. Now, let me ask you. Do you feel like you lack potential? That someone's stealing it from you? Well, let me promise you this. God's not stealing your potential. He's no thief. Satan is that thief. And if you give in to the evil one, you'll find yourself fleeing down the wadis of life with your enemies in hot pursuit and depression... And discouragement all over you. You will end up with wounds too. But listen to what Jesus goes on to say. He says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. 
But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So the very first thing you've got to do if you're going to overcome discouragement is get off your face, get on your feet, and try to find out why you're feeling so discouraged. And with discouragement, the obvious is never the source. Joshua thought he was discouraged over a lost battle. But he shouldn't have been because that wasn't the problem. It wasn't the lost battle. That wasn't the source. He should have been discouraged over the reason he lost the battle. And I'm glad to say that it didn't take Joshua very long to find out the source of his discouragement. It came from the very place that our discouragement comes from. Listen to God's word. God speaks to Joshua. So now, Joshua, I'm going to tell you why you lost the battle. Israel has sinned, and they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. Now, beloved, if we're discouraged, it's a sign that we have unrepentant sin in control of some aspect of our lives. Now, I know when I say this, that I quit preaching and I start meddling. I know you don't want to hear me say these things to you. But that doesn't change the truth of what I said. Anytime we get discouraged, my friends, it's either because of sin in our lives or because the author of sin is attacking us or both. And it's usually both. It's usually both. You see, where you find one, you usually find the other. Now, we all know that it's difficult to be victorious in any battle when we find ourselves behind enemy lines, listening to enemy propaganda, and wearing enemy uniforms. Right? But that's exactly what happens when we have unconfessed sin in our lives. And if we go on living with that unconfessed sin, we'll only nourish inner feelings of animosity. And we'll find ourselves hating. We'll find ourselves resisting God. We'll find ourselves stealing. We'll find ourselves lying. We'll find ourselves doubting the Word of God. And we'll find ourselves complaining. We'll find ourselves spending more money than we make. And we'll find ourselves spending more money than we make. And we'll find ourselves spending more money than we make. And I can promise you, when these things are going on, discouragement will overwhelm you. Now, I hope that by now, by using this example, you can see that all these things come from the same source, that malignant spirit the Bible calls Satan. And in the case of Israel, the person who brought defeat upon the nation was one single individual. See, when Joshua began to investigate to see what the source of the sin was, he found that one man was responsible for the whole thing. And what that man's name was, was Achan. And what Achan had done was this. He had taken a bar of silver, some silver coins, and a Babylonian garment from the ruins of Jericho. Then he buried those items underneath his tent. Now, you may be asking yourself, what's so wrong about that? A whole city collapses in. God knows how much gold. God knows how much gold. God knows how many Babylonian garments. What's so bad about a guy going and taking a bar of gold, a few silver coins, and a Babylonian garment? Well, Joshua 6.17 tells us. Before the battle of Jericho, God has said this to Israel. Listen closely. And Jericho shall be accursed, even it and all that are in it to the Lord. Everything, he says, in this city, every person in this city is accursed unto God. That's why God said to Joshua that only one person in that whole city, everyone was to die except for one person. You know who that one person was? It was a whore. Her name was Rahab. We nicen it up in the church today. We call her Rahab the harlot. Because nobody knows what a harlot is anymore. Well... 
I just explained it to you in graphic terms. So, everything in Jericho had the curse of death upon it. Now, I hope you can see that everything about this story then reminds you, or should remind you, of the fall of Adam. In the case of Adam, what happened? One man sinned and brought the curse, a cursedness, are you with me now, upon the entire human race. That's what Adam did. Now, in the case of Achan, one man brought the curse of death upon what? The entire nation. These are parallel instances. God is teaching us a sermon about Genesis out of Joshua. Oh, God's so brilliant. You see, the nation was accursed because of one man. But thanks be to God, the curse would be lifted from Israel. And guess how it was lifted? It was lifted in the same way that the curse has been lifted off of you and me. You see, we don't have to live under that curse. We're born under it. We're born under it, but we don't have to live under it. The curse came upon Israel, but they didn't have to continue to live under the curse. You see, the curse was lifted from Israel in the same way that the curse has been lifted from us. And I want you to listen to Joshua 8.29 and see if it reminds you of anything. Now listen carefully. And the king of Ai... Now, was this guy good? No. The, the king of Ai was a wicked guy. And the king of Ai hanged on a tree. And the king of Ai hanged on a tree until 6 o'clock p.m. What time did Joshua hang him on the tree? 9 o'clock in the morning. He hung on the tree till 6 o'clock in the evening. And as soon as the sun went down... Are you guys with me? As soon as the sun went down, Joshua commanded that they should take the body of the king of Ai down from the tree and place it at the entrance of the gate of the city. That is, place it outside the walls of the city, outside the city gate... You're with me? And raised thereon, that is, over the body of the king, a great heap of stone, that is, a rock tomb. Make him a tomb of stone that remains in that place to this very day. Jesus was placed on a tree at 9 o'clock. He became sin. He became the king of Ai. He died at 3 o'clock. His body was taken down at sunset and placed in a rock, in a rock tomb outside Ganath Gate in Jerusalem. Once that had happened, the curse was lifted off of the nation of Israel. Once the king of Ai died. When Jesus said his words, it is finished. The curse was lifted off of you and me. And there's no reason for us to...
to ever wallow in discouragement ever again. You see, God's standard is this. Someone sins, someone must die. I'm glad to tell you, 2,000 years ago, someone died. Now, understand it. We like to say, Christ died for me. No, 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 no. That's, that's wrong. Jesus did not die for you. Jesus died as you. When He hung there, you were hanging there. And if you can understand and you can receive that and you can accept that, then the curse is lifted from off of you because someone has taken that curse himself. That, my friends, is the good news of the Christian gospel. Achan sinned, and the king of Ai died. See, Adam sinned, the king of glory died. Why? So that the remainder of the children of Israel might be liberated from the curse. Adam sinned, Jesus took that sin upon himself, and since in a sense becoming the king of Ai, and died so that you and I can be liberated from that curse. And let me tell you the good news. You are secure in Him. It's your faith that saves you. It's not what you do. It's what He has done for you. And your faith in that is what saves you. And that is my teaching for today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Ariel Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at arielministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Ariel Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Ariel Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit arielministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit arielministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.